And this morning, uh, as Mike mentioned earlier on, it uh, doesn't quite fit into a series or a sequence. Um, rather, it's just something that God has put on our heart as a team uh, to bring and to share, to encourage you this morning. Uh, and we're going to be looking together at a passage from the Old Testament, uh, from 1 Kings chapter 8, um, which takes place at the point where Israel have just finished building the temple in Jerusalem. And they're having a big party, essentially, to celebrate it, to dedicate it. And as part of that, King Solomon stands up and prays a prayer of dedication to God for the temple. And so this is what it says in 1 Kings 8, 22 to 26. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. And now in choosing this passage to look at together this morning, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Uh, what I'm not saying here on our uh, third meeting together, our third Sunday morning uh, as a church community in our new building, um, is that we have arrived at the new temple. Um, that kind of thousands of years later, what was built in Jerusalem has been rebuilt in Harborn for Oasis Church today, and we are standing within it, and this is the moment of dedication. Um, this is not the new temple. I am not the new Solomon. Um, I don't have anywhere near enough wives for that, for the first thing, or, or any, to be honest, to start with. But I do think there are some really important things in what Solomon prays for us to get hold of as a community, and for us to get hold of as individuals as we start this year. And so we're going to go through the passage a verse at a time and see what Solomon's prayer reveals about the nature and character of God and why that is such an encouragement to us as we head into 2018. We're going to see that our God is a God who defines community, who defies explanation, who delivers always, who demonstrates grace, and who declares truth. In other words, he is a God who is dedicated to us as he calls us to dedicate ourselves to him afresh this year. And so first of all, verse 22, our God is the God who defines community. See what it says, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel. And for the people of God in the Old Testament, this moment was a big deal. And so they've been rescued from slavery in Egypt, they've wandered in the wilderness, they've been brought into the promised land, they've seen things kind of fall apart a bit, uh, 
and fall apart further in the time of Saul. But finally, things have started to come together. David had brought peace and stability to the nation. He had established the capital in Jerusalem. And now his son Solomon had built the temple, that permanent physical expression of God's presence with them. This was what they had been waiting for, a place where the nation could gather to worship, could come and be made right with him, could draw near to God in order that he might dwell in their very midst. It was a moment of them saying as a community, we're here, we have arrived. For a people so often on the move, so frequently scattered and downtrodden and lost, they at last had a place that was beginning to feel like home. It was a physical expression of the covenant that God had made with Israel in forming them to be his people. See, God has always been a covenant God, by which I mean he's always been a God who is seeking to not just have a a passing relationship with humanity, but to dedicate himself to us, to commit himself to us in the hope that we might dedicate ourselves to him in return, that we might find our true home in him. We see echoes of this right the way throughout the Bible. It starts in creation, with the garden and the gifts that God gives to his people. We see it most clearly as well, I think, in Genesis chapter 15, which is a story about how God makes a covenant with Abraham to promise him that he would be with him that he would make him the father of a nation who numbered more than the stars in the sky. And if you read that story for yourself uh, later on in Genesis 15, what you, you'll find is that they confirm this agreement in quite a strange way. And in those days, the way in which a covenant was agreed was that uh, both parties would stand on opposite sides of a trench um, containing the parts of an animal that had been sacrificed And then one after the other, they would walk through the pieces and essentially to say that if they broke their side of the agreement, let them become like the animals who had been sacrificed. We sign our names on a piece of paper, very quick and easy. That's how they did it in those days. I'm glad we've moved to paper, is all I can say. But in this case, if you read the story, what you'll find is that without Abraham acting, God does it twice. He does it both ways. What he's essentially saying is, if I fail to live up to my side of the agreement, to be with you, to make you the father of a great nation, then I'll pay the price for that and I'll die. And if you fail to live up to your side, to follow me, well, instead of you, I'll still pay the price for that and die. That's the strength of the covenant promise that God has established with his people. And so when we skip forward to the passage that we're looking at this morning, we find a nation who at last number more than the stars in the sky, when they've got a home, and they've got a place in the midst of them where God can dwell, we find that it's God's presence right there, right in the midst, that is defining everything about who they are to be as a community. It's the foundation of everything that they are together, that although they've walked away, still he's drawn them back. And this moment, the 
the dedication of the temple. It's one of the high points of the Old Testament. A lot of things for Israel go wrong from this point on. There's war and famine and idolatry, exile and captivity. To name just a few, but they walk as far away from the covenant as it's possible to get, and yet still God holds up his end. Still he holds up his side, and still he holds up theirs. He comes and he dies that we might live. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed. As we start this new year together, the first thing to draw from this scripture is that our God is the one who defines community, that he is the one who has drawn us together, that he has given himself for us in order to establish us as who we are. He has given himself for us in order that who we are together might be defined by his presence with us. That's who we get to be this year as Oasis, a covenant community, not a community with just a passing acquaintance to one another, but a people established in the new covenant of grace that Jesus has brought for us on the cross. People not marked out by our ability to be the very best all the time, but by our union to Christ and to one another people who don't get it right all the time, but who are still seeking to be dedicated to God in response to his dedication to us. That's the first thing. Second thing to draw from Solomon's prayer, in verse 23, um, he prays, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your ways. In other words, our God is like no one else. Our God is a God who defies explanation. You know, he is the one being in the entire universe who can define everything else by its relationship to him. He is that central. He is that essential. The ultimate description of anything in all of creation is in how it relates to its creator. And yet, you see how he chooses to be defined? By his covenant of love, by his dedication to his people. The prophet Isaiah expresses something similar in Isaiah 54. He says, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. You might be here this morning because you want to know more about God. You want to find out more about him. You want to learn what it is to have faith in him and to follow him. 
who is this God who defies explanation? Well, this is who he is. He's the one who defines himself by his love. He defines himself by how he relates to his people. He defines himself as the one who is the friend to the lonely, the comfort to the suffering, the beauty to the blind, the freedom to the captive, the riches to the poor, the rest to the weary, the peace to the anxious, the wholeness to the broken, the truth to the seeking, and the hope to the hopeless. That's who God is. There's no one like him. He defies our best attempts to explain him. And yet he makes himself known only and always in his love by his son. If you're here today and you're, you're looking for God, you're looking for who he is, that's what he's like. The truth is, um, every one of us is looking for something. We see it more than ever at this time of year. Uh, resolutions, new year, new me. It's all part of that human nature to seek after something, to try and embrace that thing that will make us truly happy. What are you looking for this year? What do you desire for 2018? Do you desire fame this year? George Whitefield says that Jesus is of the highest dignity. He is the glory of heaven, the darling of eternity, adored by angels, dreaded by demons, admired by saints. Do you desire riches this year? None is comparable to Christ. The fullness of the earth belongs to him. To be united to him is to share in his unsearchable riches, to receive of his fullness grace upon grace, to enjoy him and all that is in him for all eternity. If you desire wisdom or knowledge, Christ stands alone above any other. His knowledge is infinite. His wisdom is the same. To be united to Christ is to find one who will guide and counsel you and make you wise, as the Bible says, unto salvation. Do you desire power this year? There's none that can equal Christ in power. He has all power. Through him, all things were created. And by his word, everything is sustained. In every second of every minute of every hour of every day. Do you desire goodness this year? There's nobody like Christ in his goodness. The very best of human kindness and compassion is but an imperfect taste of what's found in him. The one who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. Do you desire beauty this year? Nothing and nobody can compare to him. The most awesome wonders of creation are what they are because they reflect a glimpse of the one who created them, the one whose hands craft the micro and the macro, the atoms and the galaxies, the one whose eyes sparkle as he, as he looks upon his children, the one whose smile refreshes the soul. Finally, do you desire love this year? 
Well, his love surpasses all other loves. The love of Christ is without beginning. It's free from any motive. It's beyond any measure. It's constant without change. And it's everlasting without end. Whatever you're looking for this year, you'll find it first in him. New year, new hopes, new opportunities, new burdens, new fears. Same Jesus. The one who defies explanation. The one who's dedicated himself to us and calls us to dedicate ourselves to him this year. And yet, at the same time, this love isn't just kind of a warm feeling. It's not a feel-good platitude. As we start this year, we can stand confident in the knowledge that our God is on the move, that God has acted and will act powerfully in the world. He is the lion roaring at evil to back down. He's the warrior standing in front of the helpless to protect them. He's the king riding out to win a great victory, even though it costs him everything. He's the God who delivers always. And in verse 24, Solomon declares, you have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your hand you have promised and with your hand you have uh, with your mouth you've promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. And we talk about the Bible uh, being God-breathed, you know, his spirit poured out upon the authors to enable them to write the inspired word of God in order that we can receive it today as we open and read, as God's word to us today. Uh, Charles Spurgeon describes uh, the promises of God found in Scripture uh, as the checkbook of the bank of faith. They're not given that we might kind of scan them once um, and then leave them on the side like a Christmas card from a distant aunt. Um, They're not meant that we kind of read them and look over them and then leave them sitting on a desk somewhere, think, oh, that was nice, and then move on. Rather, we're to treat the promises that we find as a concrete reality. We're to take hold of them by accepting them by faith as ours and believingly present them back to God as you might uh, present a check to a cashier at the bank. We're to bring them to God in prayer in expectation that what he has spoken will be fulfilled. Spurgeon writes that uh, some of these promises are ours to see the fruit of immediately and some we have to wait on patiently but that God has given no pledge that he will not redeem, encouraged no hope which he will not fulfill, and left no situation deficient of a promise he has prepared. You see, God's promises are not like ours. And the last hours before Jesus' death paint this out so vividly for us. Peter, uh, Jesus' most trusted friend, stands up amongst the disciples and he declares his greatest promise. He stands up and he says, uh, even if everyone else falls away, I will not fall away. Even if I must die, I will not deny you. And yet, just a few hours later, he's found swearing to servants and strangers that he's never met the man. And there's this moment where a rooster crows after Peter's 
denied Jesus for the third time, just as Jesus said that it would. And their eyes meet across the courtyard. And Peter is utterly broken. He just runs away and he weeps. His promise, his greatest promises, born of loyalty and of pride, born of faith and of fear, stand in ruins. And yet, Peter is all of us. Despite our lofty ambitions, despite our bold proclamations, despite whatever grand resolutions we've made this year, we know that we all fall short. But while Peter is ashamed of the truth, Jesus would bear shame in name for truth. While Peter was unfaithful, Jesus is uncompromisingly faithful. Just a few hours later, there he is, hanging on a cross for Peter, for me, and for you. That he would do that. That's why when we pick up this book, when we search it for the truths and promises that are found within, we can trust that he will always deliver. This is the one who is the word of God, the voice spoken out across the ages, who speaks the promises. He's the one who fulfills them in himself as he dies. You can trust that what God has promised to you in this book will come to pass because the one who spoke it is the one who's fulfilled it and he's proved it in the cost that he's borne for us. That's the extent of his dedication to us, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Will you dedicate yourself to him this year to take hold of the promises laid out for you? John Piper writes that uh, raking is easy, but you only get leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. There are plenty of diamonds in God's word for us this year. It's a community and of individuals. So, he defines community. He defies explanation and description, and he delivers always. And he's also the God who demonstrates grace. Um, I have to be honest, I'm not a big crier generally. I could probably count the number of times in the last decade that I've cried on uh, one hand. Uh, But one moment that gets me always uh, is the end of the film Cool Runnings, um, which is on every Christmas, which is a bad thing. Um, But basically, if you haven't seen the film, there's the Jamaican bobsleigh team, part of it, and they... Uh, They crash out on their final run, essentially, at the Winter Olympics. And there's this moment where they kind of hoist the sledge onto their shoulders and they walk across the line, kind of defeated but triumphant at the same time. And uh, it just gets me every single time, Uh, which is why it's very dangerous when all this Christmas TV comes on. I'm like, oh, there it is again. But I love it so much as well at the same time. Um, There are, along with that, a couple of points in Scripture where... Even my stony heart um, is softened as I read them. Um, And I was reading one of those over the Christmas holidays, 
Um, and it's a story in Ezekiel chapter 16. Uh, it's a parable of how God comes to Israel, how he finds her lying naked and abandoned, how he cares for her, how he restores her and redeems her, how he dedicates himself to her, only for her to betray him in the most awful of ways again and again, only for Israel to take everything that he's given and use it for evil instead. And I was reading that over Christmas, and it just broke me as I did. It's the pattern that's repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament that God keeps his side a hundred times over, and mankind walks away a hundred times over. Lots of people ask the question, quite rightly, why it seems like God gets quite angry at different points in the Old Testament. When you read through a passage like Ezekiel 16, you start to get a hold of the breadth of the picture of how humanity has repaid God's kindness and his goodness and his love. The question you're left with isn't, um, why does God get so angry? It's why does God put up with it for so long? And Solomon in verse 25 um, provides another classic example of this. He's entreating God, he's praying and asking God to keep hold of his promise to David that if his descendants walk faithfully, then his line will always sit on the throne. And yet, just like Peter, before the end of his life, Solomon himself has turned away. He's denied God entirely. He's living entirely outside of his goodness. He prays this great prayer, yet he can't even manage one generation, let alone that it's promised to be true throughout the ages. And yet, despite mankind turning away, God keeps his promise. He keeps a descendant of David on the throne of Israel for years to come. But more than that, he sends his son, born of the line of David, in order to rescue and redeem and restore, to live, die, and rise again, and ascend to sit on that throne forever. That's grace. That's grace. It's a grace that offends our sense of fairness if we get hold of it properly. Is it fair that God should keep upholding his commitment to us long after we've forgotten about him? Is it fair that the hands that crafted creation be nailed to a tree? Is it fair that the only truly righteous man should die a criminal's death in order that the guilty might go free? Of course it's not fair. It's grace. It's freely given, undeserved, unmerited, unattainable grace. Our God is the God who is always demonstrating this grace to his people. That's the foundation as we start this year. As we start every year, as we come together and we come to God, the Father of grace. We come knowing that what we have to bring is very little. We come empty-handed, broken, but knowing that all we need to do is come and receive. 
doesn't matter where you're at this morning. The invitation is the same. This year, this day, and every day, come and receive this grace from the God who is always showing his love to his people. Final thing, verse 26. Solomon prays, Now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. You know, all of us can be living at different points with words over our lives which have come to define us. They might have been spoken by others or by ourselves. They might have been left unsaid but still lingered anyway. They might be words spoken over us which lift us up, make us feel good or which push us down. They might be defining us in ways that we like or in ways that we don't. There might be words spoken over ourselves and others that we're proud of or words that we regret but we can't take back. We might have tried to speak them over ourselves this year as a way of defining ourselves for the new year. The truth of the gospel is there are no words you can speak over yourself, no identity you can create for yourself that is better than the word he has already spoken over you. It's better than the identity he has already given you. That you are loved, that you are welcomed home, that you are given and shown grace, that you are a child of the king, that he has dedicated himself to you. That's the truth you can hang everything on this year. And so how do we respond this year? We come with what we have, no matter how small it seems in comparison, and we dedicate ourselves to him in return. That word dedicate, we've used it a lot this morning, it's got a couple of different meanings. See, when we dedicate something to God, we, we give it over to him entirely. We recognize that it's entirely his when we dedicate a baby. We're saying, Lord, please enable this child to grow up knowing what it is to be part of your family. Please draw them to yourself because we know that you're the only one who can. It's all in your hands. But at the same time, when we dedicate ourselves to something, we go all out to try and achieve it. Like an athlete dedicating themselves to their goal of Olympic glory, striving day after day to become best. It's both of those two things. It's the giving over, the recognizing that it's entirely his, and it's the pursuing. It's the seeking after it. That's what I'm going for this year. As God has given himself to me, and is still in every moment dedicating himself to working for my good, so too I want to be one who dedicates myself to him, who gives myself over to him entirely, who recognizes that it's all his, and yet who pursues him more and more this year with everything that I've got. That's what it is to live the life of faith, to give over and to pursue and we're going to finish this morning and start this year together by sharing um, in a symbol of this dedication, this meal 
that we get to enjoy called communion. It's declared truth that Jesus gave to us for us to take hold of and we receive as we share it together.